Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. All right. Hello, Micah and Eve. Welcome again to another Fertility and Sterility on Air. Today, we're going to go through the Fertility and Sterility February 2021 table of contents. For those keeping score at home, it's volume 115, number two. I'll start us off, but I uh, wanted to at least say um, welcome back to the new COVID world and, uh, and see how you guys are doing in this new year. Yeah, good morning, Kurt. Good morning, Micah. Not really happy new year to everybody, but happy February and trucking along. Glad to be back together with you guys. Excited to talk about the February edition of the journal. Terrific. Let's start us off with the views and reviews. This month's views and reviews is spearheaded by William Sklaff. It's a little unusual, but incredibly informative and fascinating. So rather than focusing on medical issues, they're focusing on legal considerations in reproductive medicine. I mean, clearly this series is intended as an overview or an education and not legal advice, but I think it's a must read for everybody. It's thought-provoking, comprehensive, informing, and above all, eye-opening. There are five articles in this issue, each one diverse and comprehensive, but intended to have some overlapping themes. The first contribution is by Judith Starr from Northern Kentucky University Chase College of Law, and this article discusses physician autonomy and discriminates the risks and limitations of saying no. The paper focuses on when and how physicians can exercise their personal and professional autonomy in their clinical practice. And as described in this article, it is absolutely clear that physicians can appropriately and safely refuse requested treatment in many, but not all situations in which we practice. The second paper is contributed by Margaret Swain, who's a RN and JD, and Colin Rogerson, who presents a comprehensive and timely update regarding cross-border surrogacy and current topics and trends, including the management of COVID-19 pandemic. In this article, the authors summarize a number of key principles that should be considered whenever intended parents and gestational carriers are considering third-party reproduction in the United States or abroad. The importance of legal representation for all parties involved, including the practice, is strongly encouraged and outlined. Some of the points that fascinated me included that a carrier or surrogate is the quote-unquote medical manager of the pregnancy and cannot be forced to comply with the wishes of intended parents, although there might be some financial or non-medical repercussions from contractual obligations. The third paper by Lisa Reinhardt, again an RN and JD, describes the practical legal challenges associated with cryo-storage, transport, and disposition of gametes and embryos. It also takes on perhaps the most difficult issue which is the disposition of abandoned embryos. As described in this article, medical technology largely races ahead of the law, and this article provides a framework to potentially avoid pitfalls associated with management of frozen reproductive material. In the next article, Sonia Suter, who has a master's in genetic and also is a lawyer, describes the updated legal issues regarding genetic screening of both partners and embryos. Practice standards are changing incredibly quickly, and it's not really clear whether genetic testing is an option or a right. 
Expanded carrier screening and genetic diagnosis for aneuploidy is only increasing and will become more problematic for our practices in the future. This article explores a medical and legal prism to better understand opportunities and obligations as well as commenting on patients and providers and how they can address this new age of genetics. The final article, Richard Yanofsky, an MBA and a lawyer, and Theodore Hasselman, covers the business aspects of practice managers, practice mergers, and consolidations. As we learn reproductive endocrinology and become board certified, we rarely consider the business practices. Today, perhaps just as important as medical practice are practice consolidations and commercialization. This article explores what factors practitioners and owners of fertility practices should consider before pursuing a potential sale or merger. It also describes how to prepare for such a transaction and what to expect when the transaction is underway. So as this theme for all of the articles, and of course these articles cannot be truly comprehensive, but wow, it really does make you think of issues that we don't normally think of on a day-to-day -day basis. I want to again thank Bill Sklaff for putting this incredible, comprehensive, and thought-provoking articles together, and I encourage you all to take a look at these articles, either the ones that intrigue you the most or the whole set. They're worth the time to read. Mike and Eve, what do you think about the aspects of legal and ethics in our practice? Is this something we should learn more about? Yeah, Kurt, I couldn't agree more. And in last month's episode, there were lots of articles about the business of reproductive medicine, and I think it's so fitting that this month covers the legal aspects of reproductive medicine. And I think that they're so intimately related and so important to understand not just the medicine and the science of what we do, but all of the social and legal construct that impact how we're able to take care of our patients. So I, I found this section to be incredibly insightful. Yeah, I'm glad Fertilian's reality is taking on more than just medicine. This month's Inklings was titled Reproductive Medicine as Seen Through Single Cell Glasses by Felipe Vallea and Carlos Simone. In 2016, international collaborators created an ambitious consortium named the Human Cell Atlas and is led by scientists at MIT and the Sanger Institute. HCA's aim is to identify and map every cell type of the human body to better understand how cells work together to form tissues and organs. The translational implications are clear, providing better understanding of human health and facilitating monitoring and treatment of diseases. The technology enabling us to understand how an organ is arranged at the single cell level is a combination of experimental and computational methods, blending biology and genetics with math, new computational tools, and pragmatism. Single cell analyses can be particularly useful to reveal nuanced transcriptomic changes in dynamic environments such as reproductive tissues, especially the endometrium, the maternal embryonic interface in early pregnancy, and also the ovary. These have all been explored with single cell glasses. Now genomics is progressing medical science, including reproductive medicine, and taking medical care to the next level. Dr. Simone concludes by saying, the era of single cell transcriptomics is upon us, and we will discover at what extent specific reproductive disorders have a firm pathophysiological foundation or simply a lack of physiological understanding. Really interesting inklings, and I encourage you all to read it.
Thank you, Evan. I want to make a comment. Single cell biology is really hitting the big time now. In fact, there's a huge NIH investment in something called a hub map where they're going to look at all the different cells of the human body. And thank goodness they've included the cells of the human female reproductive tract as well. So hopefully many of this literature will be published in fertility and sterility, but it's somewhere we're definitely going to be going. I'm glad because as they've been leaving reproductive age women and pregnant women out of many clinical trials, I'm so glad to see the inclusion of female reproductive parts in the hub studies. So I have the privilege of describing the 50 years ago article. This article is submitted by Jennifer Backinson and our own Eve Feinberg and is titled The Promises and Pitfalls of Male Contraceptive Vaccines. So in 1971, there was an article by Tallett and Lawrence describing impairment of spermatogenesis and libido through antibodies to luteinizing hormone. However, despite this enticing concept and title, there's been very little in the way of contraceptive development for men in the past 50 years. 50 years ago, obviously, it was thought that vaccines might be the answer. Well, today we're focusing on vaccines for a different reason. However, the future of male contraception isn't completely bleak. Currently, there are transdermal combinations of progestin and androgens that are being tested in phase three trials to see if they can decrease sperm counts while maintaining male secondary sexual characteristics. Thus, while male contraceptive vaccine has not succeeded, we should maintain optimism for the future. So Eve, what prompted you to choose this article to describe 50 years later? Do you have any other comments on it? I thought it was very timely as we talk about novel vaccine developments. And as you know, that the COVID-19 early vaccines or mRNA vaccines and some of the others are attenuated other strains of coronavirus vaccines. I thought it was amazing to look back and see the progress and potentially the future of vaccine development through the lens of reproductive medicine. So we also have two committee opinions from the ASRM Practice Committee in this month's edition of the journal. The first is in vitro maturation, a committee opinion. The main take-home point from this is that ASRM no longer considers IVM to be experimental. However, this does not mean that IVM is endorsed as being applicable or appropriate for all clinical scenarios. IVM still has lower blastulation, implantation, and live birth compared to conventional IVF. Therefore, IVM may best be suited to patients who are at very high risk of OHSS or those with time-sensitive fertility preservation. IVM should be performed by providers and clinics who have the experience and expertise to offer this, and further research is needed to both advance IVM and continue to compare it to the gold standard of conventional IVF. The second document is a review of best practices of rapid cooling vitrification for oocytes and embryos, a committee opinion. This committee opinion provides a technical glossary and discussion of freezing and warming techniques. It provides a list of KPIs for laboratories. It discusses that embryo survival is now approaching 100% with modern vitrification techniques, and it gives guidance for quality control measures to obtain high-quality results. Overall, this is a technical document primarily meant for the lab, but is written in such a way to be accessible for the clinician. So two good documents from our practice committee this month. We're gonna transition and talk about some of the original articles. And the first article that I'm gonna be talking about actually relates somewhat to the idea of the male contraceptive vaccine that we had just discussed. 
The title of this article is Disruption of Protein Phosphate 1 Complexes Using Bioportides as a Novel Approach to Target Sperm Motility. And this was done by Joanna Vieira Silva and others from Portugal. The study was an in vitro study evaluating the impact of competitive bioportides on protein phosphatase 1 activity and disruption of sperm motility. This research is attractive as it is for the future development of a male contraceptive target. Sperm motility is important, as we all know, to move sperm through the female reproductive tract in order to fertilize an egg. However, despite decades of research, sperm motility is still not very well understood. An important signaling event responsible for sperm motility acquisition is thought to be under control of sperm PP1, and the activity of this PP1 is high in the caput epididymis where sperm are immodal, and PP1 activity is really low in the cauda epididymis where sperm are modal. And so in this study, the investigators designed peptides, these competitive bioportides that mimic the PP1 binding motif of the human AKA P4, which is a sperm specific kinase anchor protein. What they found is that bioportides were able to enter the sperm cell in vitro and to achieve intracellular accumulation without affecting sperm vitality. Progressive motility was significantly affected using MSS1, an optimized bioportide. However, sperm motility was not completely abolished by these bioportide constructs, and more complex mechanisms of disruption are still needed in order to render these efficacious. The reflections for this piece was written by Ator Caropo, who notes that it is too early to speculate about the clinical application of bioportides as male contraceptives due to the inherent pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic issues. So perhaps in 50 years, when somebody else is writing the 50 years ago column, they will talk about bioportides as well as vaccines as the very early stages of male contraceptive development. Thank you, Eve. That's a, a great perspective on that article. So sticking with male infertility, Yang and colleagues from Sichuan, China, present their article this month, Molecular Characteristics of Varicocele, Integration of Whole Exome and Transcriptome Sequencing. This was a study done in both rats and in men with varicoceles to explore whole transcriptome and whole exome sequencing looking for pathways that might be candidates for the molecular pathogenesis of varicocele formation, something we understand very little about. In their study, the authors identified some new candidate genes and four potential molecular pathways related to varicocele formation. The authors conclude that these novel candidate genes and pathways may be involved in the development of varicocele formation and warrant future targeted research. The commentary by Santana and Estevez from Brazil discusses both the strengths and the limitations of this study at the scientific level. However, they highlight the lack of current knowledge about varicocele development and the need for us to develop risk biomarkers that could identify young men at risk for developing varicocele. Overall, this is a study that will be of interest to researchers studying varicocele development and the pathogenesis, and it raises new candidate genes that need further study. Thanks, Micah. I get to present the third article in the Andrology section in this month's journal. And this article is titled, A Predictive Model to Estimate the Chances of Successful Sperm Retrieval by Testicular Sperm Aspiration in Patients with Non-Obstructive Azospermia. This article is from an international collaboration, including Qatar, Cornell Medical Center, 
Cairo, Egypt, Brazil, and Denmark by the first author, Mezab. The study evaluates patients with non-obstructive azospermia and tries to come up with a predictive model that can best help predict which patients might have successful sperm retrieval and perhaps how to go about that sperm retrieval. This was a retrospective study looking at five years of data and included almost 300 patients presenting with non-obstructive azospermia. In an elegant statistical analysis, the author used predictors and regression analysis to develop a predictive model for successful sperm retrieval. The main positive predictors included testicular size and FSH hormone, specifically if the testis was greater than 7.5 milliliters in volume and if the FSH level was less than 8.5, both of those being the cutoffs. Overall, the study showed that using these predictors, successful sperm retrieval could increase from 25% to approximately 45%. The area under the curve for this model was a robust 0.75. So predictive models are becoming very common in medicine. In reality, these models are what are called data-driven, meaning the computer or the model is going to find you an answer. So these answers don't always hold up when you replicate them or validate these predictors in other studies. But that doesn't mean these predictive models are not valuable. They do help us understand which factors that we might look at for a patient might be the most predictive and therefore most help us determine how to counsel a patient. So I'm not sure we can actually use these numbers and make a mathematical prediction, but it certainly does help in this difficult field of non-obstructive azospermia, telling a patient when they might have successful sperm retrieval and when they may not, and as the authors mentioned, when they might need to use TESA or perhaps microTESA. So it doesn't affect your clinical practice every day, but again, this is a neat contribution. I love predictive models. I think I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and just talk a little bit about your paper, Kurt, which is another predictive model. It's a predictive model for chemotherapy-related diminished ovarian reserve in reproductive age women. And this was first author, Margaret Hopeman. Kurt, you were one of our middle authors, and Clarissa Gracia is the senior author on this paper. And this is a, a really lovely study, and it looked to develop and internally validate a clinical predictive tool to assess the likelihood that a young cancer patient will experience diminished ovarian reserve after chemotherapy. The goal was to create a model that can be used prior to chemotherapy to guide recommendations regarding the need for fertility sparing therapies. And this was a multi-center prospective cohort study called Oracle, Ovarian Reserve After Cancer Longitudinal Effects Between Five Medical Centers. Young women who are newly diagnosed with cancer were referred to a reproductive endocrinologist for consultation regarding fertility preservation. All of these women were enrolled in Oracle prior to the onset of cancer therapy. The primary outcome was diminished ovarian reserve after completion of and recovery from chemotherapy, and they defined DOR as an AMH of less than 1, 8 to 24 months after completion of cancer treatment. There were 102 participants in this study with a mean age of 27, and cancers were primarily breast, lymphoma, leukemia, sarcoma, and others. In this cohort, 63% of patients received an alkylating agent, and a small percentage of patients received radiation or hormone therapy. 79% of patients had an AMH of less than 1, 8 to 24 months after completion of chemotherapy. 
The final model performance was excellent and had an AUC of 0.89. And so what the model showed was that age, cancer type, exposure to an alkylating agent, and baseline AMH can accurately predict which women are at increased risk of diminished ovarian reserve caused by chemotherapy. The authors found that higher AMH and higher antral follicle counts were protective against DOR. Lymphoma and other cancer types had a lower risk of DOR compared to breast cancer. And not surprisingly, those who were exposed to alkylating agents had a highly increased risk of DOR. In fact, exposure to an alkylating agent caused a tenfold increased risk of DOR and has confirmed previous reports in the literature demonstrating that alkylating agents have the highest potential to cause chemotherapy-induced ovarian failure. The reflections to this piece was written by Paula Brady and Eric Foreman from Columbia. They viewed this piece as a valuable new addition to the literature, but note that the study is not designed nor powered to evaluate radiation damages. Kurt, perhaps as co-author, you can help me out here. The paper describes the model. It gives a fantastic specific example of the output of the model comparing the scenario of a 26-year-old with lymphoma and an AMH of six undergoing different types of chemotherapy. But is the model actually published and usable? I wanted to have a hyperlink to click onto the model and to begin to play around with it to do different inputs, but did not see that at least in the version that I received. But I thought it was a great paper and I really look forward to having this model as a counseling tool for my patients. Thanks, Eve. I'm not sure the technological aspects of whether the link is available. We, that's a great idea. Maybe I can talk to my co-authors and make it work. But as you mentioned in regarding predictive models, in my mind, they're more valuable in identifying what are the true risk factors and perhaps the hierarchy of those risk factors. The actual within decimal points prediction of uh, failure is probably less important other than, you know, talking to a patient in general. But yes, I'll try to find out if the link is available. Thank you. The next paper we're going to talk about is Can Embryo Morphokinetic Parameters Predict Euploid Pregnancy Loss by Dana McQueen with senior author Mary Ellen Pavone from Northwestern. Dana's our recently graduated third-year fellow, and this was a really nicely done project that she completed during her fellowship. This was a retrospective cohort of euploid single embryo transfers that compared morphokinetic parameters between euploid embryos resulting in pregnancy loss and euploid embryos that resulted in live birth. There were 192 euploid single embryo transfers with a 78% pregnancy rate and 63% live birth rate. There were 29 euploid embryos that resulted in miscarriage. The authors collected and analyzed all baseline characteristics, cycle parameters, and outcomes, including embryo morphokinetics using time-lapse imaging, so time to syngamy, time to two cells, time to three cell, four cell, eight cell, and time to blastulation. They didn't find significant differences in unadjusted and adjusted models of embryos resulting in miscarriage compared to those that resulted in live birth. In other words, time-lapse in this study did not help to distinguish embryos that would go on to live birth versus those that would result in loss. Of note, though, there were some observable differences in the later events like timing of moriola stage and timing of blastocyst development. The cohort that resulted in live birth reached moriola stage two and a half hours sooner and reached blastocyst stage three and a quarter hours sooner. This was not found to be statistically significant. 
The Reflections piece was written by Marcos Mesaguay from EVRMA Valencia, who focuses on the limitations of the paper. There were only 13 miscarriages that had confirmatory testing, showing that they truly were euploid. And he makes a valid point that the lack of statistical significance observed between the two groups may simply be due to this small sample size. He also discusses how artificial intelligence and deep neural networks using morphokinetic data may be able to distinguish novel patterns related to euploid loss. While I think this was a really interesting study, I do agree that it is limited by the small sample size, and I think it deserves to be looked at in a larger cohort. And I very much look forward to seeing more papers on this in the future. Thank you, Eve. It seems that uh, time-lapse imaging continues to be a technology that's looking for a space within our clinic for practical benefit for our patients. So moving on to the next article, Georgeson and colleagues from Copenhagen explore if iron is associated with recurrent pregnancy loss in their study. Serum ferritin level is inversely related to the number of previous pregnancy losses in women with recurrent pregnancy loss. This was a cohort study of RPL patients and control patients presenting to a fertility clinic. Serum ferritin was measured at their presentation, and patients were followed for two years prospectively for subsequent pregnancy outcomes and looked back retrospectively for their prior losses. Lower serum ferritin was found in the RPL group as compared to those in the control group. Further, lower serum ferritin was associated with a history of more pregnancy losses within the RPL cohort itself. However, in the prospective follow-up portion of the study, serum ferritin was neither associated with the ability to achieve pregnancy, nor live birth, nor with subsequent pregnancy losses. The authors conclude that there's an association of serum ferritin with RPL that warrants further investigation. They also correctly caution that their data cannot demonstrate a causal relationship. Finally, they recommend that further research is needed to evaluate iron status in women with RPL and focus on whether iron supplementation might improve outcomes. There was no accompanying commentary on this article, but I'll just make a few comments. The authors did not provide a mechanistic hypothesis of why low iron might cause RPL, as they note by cautioning us against causation nor were they able to control for potential confounders like uterine pathology or medical comorbidities that might be associated with both low iron and perhaps pregnancy loss. Finally, in the half of their study that was prospective, they didn't demonstrate any association with low iron and the risk of subsequent pregnancy loss. So taken on the whole, I think this is an interesting hypothesis-generating study that warrants further research, but I don't think it justifies us going out and prescribing iron to our women with recurrent pregnancy loss at this point. Thanks. It sounds like there's both a public health benefit but not yet a therapeutic benefit. Okay, I'm going to go on to the endometriosis section. We have four articles in this section, and I'm going to describe two of them kind of together. They're both randomized trials demonstrating relief of endometriosis-related pain. Let me start as a background. We all understand how difficult and debilitating the pain associated with endometriosis can be and how hard it is to treat. We've had the same treatment options basically for decades. Usually we start with oral contraceptive pills, perhaps in a continuous fashion, and then for more severe cases or recalcitrant cases, we might move on to Lupron, a GNRH agonist. As we all know, Lupron is a sub-Q injection that can be used daily, monthly, or quarterly. Well, now we have a potential new class of medications, which are classified as oral GnRH antagonists. 
Let me go back even a little bit further. As you recall, GnRH is a peptide made of 10 nucleic acids that is secreted from the hypothalamus and works on the GnRH receptor in the pituitary, ultimately resulting in a secretion of LH and FSH, and then, of course, ultimately estrogen production. That's the fastest review of the HPO access in history. So we're all familiar as reproductive endocrinologists with access and kind of the evolution of these agents. A GnRH agonist, or Lupron, is a GnRH analog with one change in one amino acid. We recognize the benefits and the drawbacks of this agonist and have also started to commonly use antagonists, such as cetratide or Ganarelix. Antagonists have three to four changes in the amino acid structure. However, this new class of molecules is not a GnRH analog, but is something called a small molecule. It's not derived from the GnRH molecule. Small molecules have low molecular weight, around 900 Daltons, and are designed to have an effect on a tissue, often through receptors. And there are many therapeutics that are in the class of small molecules. So again, small molecules are not peptides, and there are a number of these small molecules that are working on the GnRH receptor. The first one receiving FDA approval in the United States was Elagolix. However, as we hear in this month's journal, there is another small molecule called Rulagolix, and let's not forget about a third molecule called Linzagolix, which we'll hear about more in the future. So the first article is titled Rulagolix, an oral gonadotropin-releasing hormone receptor antagonist reduces endometriosis pain in a dose-response manner in a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled study. So the title really does says it all. This is a very clear and convincing study that evaluates three doses of rulagolix on women who have dysmenorrhea and endometriosis-associated pelvic pain. It uses a visual analog scale and demonstrates both a clinically and statistically significant reduction endometriosis-related pain in a dose-response fashion. The highest dose was the most effective in treating endometriosis pain, but also had the highest side effects related to estrogen suppression. The main side effects of these drugs are hot flashes. Many of these drugs will likely be used with some sort of ADVAC therapy to alleviate these vasomotor symptoms while still maintaining efficacy. The study is interesting to read because it was conducted in Japan according to their regulatory rules and therefore included subjects that were not necessarily surgically diagnosed and perhaps could be identified with imaging such as MRI. The paper will be one of many that will help us refine the specifics of this treatment, again, probably with ADVAC therapy, that we will use in our armamentarium of medical management of endometriosis. The second paper is titled Responsiveness and Thresholds for Clinically Meaningful Changes in Worst Pain Numeric Rating Scales for Dysmenorrhea and Nonmenstrual Pain in Women with Moderate to Severe Endometriosis. Bit of a mouthful, but the study is actually pretty simple also. These data are presented from two clinical trials of Elagolix. Subjects were randomized to either placebo or two different doses for six months. Now, this is a secondary analysis from the phase three trials that were used for approval of this drug that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Of interest in this study is the novel way pain was assessed, including daily impact score, something called the worst pain score, as well as the patient's global impression of change. For your reference, this paper describes some of the difficulty in objectively measuring pain and getting it FDA approved for the measurement of reducing pain. The conclusion is that Elagolix was successful in reducing pain using many of these different scales or instruments. 
the authors point out thresholds for what may be considered clinically meaningful as opposed to just simply statistically meaningful. So perhaps these instruments can be replicated or used in other trials. So there's an accompanying reflection of these articles by Hugh Taylor, who reviews the history of development of these agents and pontificates how they'll likely been used. It's been a long time since we've had a new class of therapeutics in this area. I'm sure there'll be many more studies optimizing use, describing how to more precisely use these agents, both for pain, also perhaps as we use them to prepare someone for ART, and perhaps even as we use them in ART. So, Eve, you work with me on the DSMB for the developing of Elagolix. What do you think the future of these agents are? Is there an advantage to having more than one? Yeah, I mean, as you know, we spent many years on the DSMB for Elagolix, and I do think that it's a really good drug. It's not without side effects, but it definitely has a place in our armamentarium of how to treat patients for pain or for fibroids with an oral agent. I do think that there is a role for more development in this arena, and I would love to see less invasive ways of, of helping our patients from a pain standpoint in particular. This next article that I'm gonna talk about actually goes back and discusses surgery for endometriosis. And again, I think with the development of newer agents, perhaps we can avoid surgery in some patients and be able to treat more with an oral agent. Um, this next study was done by Ani Tuominen with senior author Paivi Harki from Finland. And this is a novel study that compares reproductive outcomes, pregnancy and delivery complications after conservative or operative treatment of rectovaginal endometriosis and long-term follow-up of these patients. So there were 543 patients in this study and a follow-up time of nearly five years in the conservative group and nearly six years in the surgical group. There were 183 patients treated conservatively and 360 treated surgically. They gathered data from electronic medical records and patients were also sent questionnaires and they had really robust response rates. The main outcome measures were clinical pregnancy rates, live birth rates, and assessment of complications during pregnancy and delivery. What I found interesting was that there were no differences in the clinical pregnancy rate or the live birth rate between groups. Medically assisted reproduction was used more often in the conservative management group, and the time to delivery was longer in the surgical group, and I suspect this is because they did not use medically assisted reproduction as frequently. Preterm birth was the most common pregnancy complication, but there was a high rate of cesarean section in both groups, nearly 50%, and the most common complication of cesarean section was postpartum hemorrhage. The reflections for this piece was written by Dr. Bill Gibbons. He notes that the surgical team was highly skilled, and he questions whether the outcomes were not different in part due to the expertise of the surgeons. What he notes is more striking, however, and I agree, is that there's an excessively high rate of placenta previa, 42% in the conservative group and 30% in the surgical group. He ends his reflection with a tribute to two of his mentors who recently passed away, Dr. V.C. Buttram and Robert Franklin, both leaders in endometriosis therapy. And so again, I think this goes back to the question of medical therapy, surgical therapy, what to use when, and how do we best help our patients. 
Thank you, Eve. So we have uh, one more article in the endometriosis section, which is robust this month in February. This study is from Bishop and colleagues from the NIH and Shady Grove Fertility, and they explored the association of endometriosis on IVF live birth in the study Endometriosis does not impact live birth rates and frozen embryo transfer of euploid blastocysts. This was a retrospective study of euploid embryo transfers in women with surgically proven endometriosis versus the control groups of euploid transfers in women using PGTM or those with male factor infertility using PGTA. Endometriosis was not associated with an increased risk of aneuploidy, which is similar to prior data out of the RMA group. Endometriosis patients had live birth in 61% of transfers, and this was similar to both the control groups that they chose. The authors conclude that endometriosis does not appear to negatively impact embryo transfer in program euploid FET cycles. The commentary was written by Pertia and De Ziegler and colleagues from Paris, and they further explore the potential that it's the suppression of ovarian function in programmed FET cycles that results in overcoming some of the detriments of endometriosis-related fertility. They further extrapolate these findings to suggest that IVF might be considered the gold standard for endometriosis, and they suggest that endometriosis patients might be better served with frozen embryo transfers instead of fresh embryo transfers. Overall, I think this study serves as another piece to untangle the pathogenesis of endometriosis-associated infertility and the mechanisms of treatment that might help overcome that. I think what I always question is, what do they mean by a programmed frozen embryo transfer cycle? What regimen did they use? And I think the bigger question is whether or not endometriosis really impacts the endometrium. Is it simply the presence of endometrial tissue outside of the uterus? Or as some speculate, there may be some alterations of receptivity of the endometrium. And so I think as we look at this further, what where I'm really curious is what is the best regimen for implantation for these patients? Is it straight estrogen and progesterone? Does it use something like an aromatase inhibitor? Should we be co-treating in these patients? And I think that there's a lot more questions than there are answers so far. I was also interested in reading that paper because it adds to the epidemiologic question of does endometriosis reduce IVF outcomes? We've been arguing this for decades, um, and it's hard to answer specifically in this paper, but it seems to show that if we get to what we want, an ultimate good euploid embryo, pregnancy rates are good. I think the mechanism is how do we get to that euploid embryo? It's not that it's, that, that it's not euploid, just how many embryos are we getting to work with and how successful is the IVF cycle? Yeah, I think those are all great points. Eve, the practical question in this paper, they were all on uh, oral contraceptive downregulation prior to starting oral estrogen and then a variety of progestins. Uh, they were not on Lupron generally, but they were downregulated first with, with oral contraceptives. But I think the point both of you make is that this is just another piece to trying to uh, solve this puzzle that's that's been complicated and, and taken a long time to, to figure out. Yeah, and I think there's there's one more piece that's coming up is whether or not program cycles may lead to higher rates of preeclampsia in the future. And so lots of lots of questions here in terms of we think that frozen may be better than fresh, but then what is the optimal regimen for a frozen transfer? And does that depend on the patient's underlying 
etiology of infertility, should we be treating an endometriosis patient differently than we treat a patient who has male factor infertility? And while frozen embryo transfer may be a one size fits all, it, it may not be a one protocol fits all in terms of how do we tailor these cycles to the individual. So Eve, those comments on obstetric outcomes lead nicely into the next two articles we're going to discuss, which look at the obstetric outcomes in patients with PCOS. The first one is by Kang from UCSF and colleagues from the NIH Research Medicine Network presenting a study called Highly Elevated Levels of AMH are associated with preterm delivery in polycystic ovary syndrome patients who underwent ovulation induction. This was a secondary analysis of two RMN randomized trials, PPCOS2 and Amigos. And this secondary analysis was designed to assess if AMH was associated with preterm delivery risk in women with both PCOS and unexplained infertility. They found that women with PCOS who delivered preterm had AMH levels of 11, which was over double that of the PCOS women who delivered at term with AMH levels of 5. Conversely, in women with unexplained infertility, AMH was 2, both in the cohort that delivered at term and the cohort that delivered preterm. The authors concluded that high AMH may be associated with an increased risk of preterm delivery in women with PCOS. Paroma from Sweden writes the commentary and notes the biologic plausibility of an association between AMH and preterm delivery, both from data from animal models and the fact that there are AMH receptors present on the human myometrium, so potentially or theoretically high AMH levels could lead to preterm contractions. However, she cautions that this study had only eight preterm births total in the PCOS arm. So I agree that this certainly makes this study at a risk of having a type 1 error just based on the small sample size. These findings are interesting, however, and seem to be corroborated with the next study that Kurt will talk about and seem to suggest that we do need to be at least doing further research into the risk of preterm delivery for women with PCOS and whether or not that's directly associated with their AMH levels. Kurt, what was the uh, next study that you had? Yeah, thanks, Micah. That's a good segue. So we're going to stay with polycystic ovary syndrome, and this study is neonatal outcomes of women with polycystic ovary syndrome after frozen thawed embryo transfer. This is from a group of authors, Lin and Zhu, from the University School of Medicine in Shanghai in the People's Republic of China. In this study, there are more than 1,100 singletons born to mothers with PCOS diagnosed by the Rotterdam criteria who were compared to approximately 10,000 singletons born to mothers without PCOS. Both groups were conceived after frozen embryo transfer at the same institution. The first of all, are you kidding me? That many singleton live births in one institution, even though it's over 10 years? That's a lot of IVF volume. Well, anyway, let's get back to the point. While it's using observational data, it's a relatively neat experimental design because of the isolation of this population. By doing this, IVF technique, whether it's fresh or frozen, can be eliminated from the comparison and we can get closer to what is the impact of the disease on neonatal outcomes. The findings conclude that the odds of preterm birth were significantly higher among infants from mothers with PCOS as compared to those without PCOS. This was true overall and in women with similar BMI. The odds ratio was around 1.5.
the odds of small for gestational age and low birth weight were also higher in women with PCOS, but this association did not hold up when accounting for similar BMI. So as described in a very thoughtful reflection by doctors Robinson and Young, both researchers from NICHD, this paper confirms some of the data on the topic. However, the authors of this inkling express some surprise that this association is relatively similar across many studies, despite the heterogeneity of the diagnosis of PCOS. They suggest it might have been expected to be a bit lower or weaker when using the Rotterdam criteria because perhaps these women have less metabolic disorders, assuming that impacts child health later. They also aptly illuminate how important preterm delivery is as a health problem and in my own words, how much we often overlook that as reproductive endocrinologists because we hand off our patients and we really don't know what happens at their delivery. So we should be continually investigating ways to reduce the risks of preterm delivery in our patients, either in the ways we practice ART, the ways we counsel women, or perhaps in the way we treat women during pregnancy. So I'd like to discuss another article about PCOS in this month's journal. This one is titled, Lifestyle Modifications Alone or in Combination with Hormonal Contraceptives Improve Sexual Dysfunction in Women with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome. I'd like to acknowledge that the authors are from my own institution, including Marissa Weiss as a first author and Anuja Dokris as a senior author, with strong contributions and collaborations from Rick Legro and his team at Penn State University. This study is a secondary analysis of the OWL randomized control study that is published elsewhere. OWL randomized women in an open-label fashion to assess the impact of preconception intervention, which included caloric restriction, weight loss medications, and behavioral modifications such as increasing exercise. These interventions were assessed alone or in combination with oral contraceptive pills. In this study, authors used the Female Sexual Function Index, or the FSFI, at the start of the study and after four months of treatment, as well as some other related surveys. The first important finding was that there was a very high prevalence of sexual dysfunction noted in women with PCOS, approaching 30%. However, the main finding of this particular paper was that there was no change in the total FSFI, or Female Sexual Distress Scale, after 16 weeks. However, there was an increase in the Sexual Desire Domain subscore for those who received lifestyle modifications alone or in combination in the randomized trial. In comparison, those that received OCPs alone had no impact on this score. So the reason I like this study is that it's focusing more on the real-world aspects of PCOS rather than just the metabolic or hormonal aspects. The idea that almost a third of women with PCOS enrolled in this trial have some sort of sexual dysfunction is really, truly eye-opening. The second fun part of the study is to understand if this dysfunction can be improved and what's the mechanism. The reflection by Heather Huddleston seeks to understand why the authors of this paper conclude that any improvement is likely multifactorial. The inkling describes how one might hypothesize that improvements in sexual dysfunction and quality of life may be due to weight loss, but that's not the case. The authors found no correlation with change in survey scores and weight loss. Thus, the latest speculation is that perhaps exercise, even without weight loss, confers benefit. There's lots of reasons to believe that this is true because literature outside of our field does indeed demonstrate the benefit of exercise, 
for improvements in quality of life and other health measures even without weight loss. Thus, the contribution of this study is increasing awareness that many women with PCOS have altered quality of life and sexual function. However, this may be improved with lifestyle modification, but the actual mechanism or specifics of what modifications are best is going to be left to future studies and future authors. However, nice contribution. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think it, it really does bear the question on where the improvement comes in. Is it hormonal? Is it exercise, lifestyle, all of those things? And I think it's kudos to the authors for taking a deep dive into this complex topic. The next paper we're going to talk about is kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum from PCOS. I always think about premature ovarian insufficiency as somewhat opposite. And this paper describes a new theca cell marker, INSL3, associated with premature ovarian insufficiency. And this was written by Chendi Zhu with a reflections piece written by Drs. Rebar and Drs. Peter. As we all know, POI or primary ovarian insufficiency is defined by cessation of ovarian function before the age of 40. This affects about one to 5% of reproductive age women and is a devastating diagnosis. Currently, there are no known markers for POI and women are often diagnosed once the oocyte supply has already been depleted. Insulin-like factor three or INSUL3 has been proposed as a novel biomarker of ovarian function. It has been reported to promote the growth and function of antral follicles, induce expression of GDF9, and facilitate oocyte maturation. INSUL3 has not been found to be elevated in women with PCOS, but has been found to be reduced in women with DOR. The search for additional biomarkers continues in the hopes of helping a larger proportion of women with POI increase their fertility and bear their own children if they so desire. The study examined women in three groups, those with normal ovarian function, what they call biochemical POI, which is analogous to what we would consider DOR, FSH of 10 to 25, and POI, which they defined as an FSH of greater than 25, measured four weeks apart and at least two times. The level of insul 3 and serum showed a statistically significant difference among the three groups. When compared with control women, insul 3 levels were statistically significantly decreased in patients with biochemical POI and POI. And women with biochemical POI also had elevated circulating levels of insul 3 compared to women with overt POI. Interestingly, the follicular fluid levels of insul 3 were not different among these three groups. And ROC analysis showed superior performance to inhibit B, but not quite as good as AMH. So in the reflections piece accompanying the article, doctors Rebar and Keter note that this new marker likely will be most useful as a new tool to aid in learning more about the pathophysiology of the ovary, but the clinical utility is yet to be determined. And I agree, I think that as of now, AMH remains in the lead as a marker that is truly reflective of the pool of available follicles and probably one of the most sensitive that can be determined early on in terms of diminished ovarian reserve. So not quite ready for prime time.
So this next paper is titled Testosterone Administration Increases Leukocyte Endothelium Interactions in Inflammation in Transgender Men. This paper was by Francesca Iantuoni and others from Valencia, Spain. This is a prospective cohort study of 157 transgender men who are naive to hormone therapy and undergoing testosterone treatment for the very first time. The purpose of this study was to assess the effect of testosterone treatment on metabolic parameters, things like leukocyte endothelium interactions and inflammatory markers in transgender male subjects. As we know, testosterone has been associated with an increase in cardiovascular risk in women, and the impact of chronic testosterone exposure on acute cardiovascular events, such as venous thromboembolism and stroke, among transgender males has not yet been explored. This study analyzed these men at baseline, and then again after 12 weeks of treatment with testosterone therapy. What they found was that testosterone, surprisingly, did not change body composition. There were no differences between anthropomorphic values. They did see an increase in endocrine values like total T, free androgenic index, and androstenedione with a decrease in sex hormone binding globulin, showing that the exogenous T was being absorbed. Following testosterone administration, they observed an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines, adhesion molecules, and atherogenic index of plasma, as well as a decrease in HDLC. In addition, they observed an increase in leukocyte endothelium interactions and pro-inflammatory cytokines. The authors concluded that treatment of transgender men with testosterone may be harmful and should lead to monitoring cardiovascular risk in these patients. In the reflections piece written by Daphne Strauza, Amanda Schwartz, and Molly Moravec, they note both the strengths and limitations of this study. The limitations are that it is a single center study of a homogenous population and that the results may be specific to the regimen of testosterone administered and may not be generalizable to all transgender men on hormones. Furthermore, the clinical significance of these data are questionable, but they do warrant investigation. And perhaps most important is that risk, like anything, must be balanced by benefit. The benefit of gender-affirming hormone therapy is well-studied and has been shown to significantly improve mental health outcomes and are associated with lower levels of depression, anxiety, stress, suicide, coupled with an improved quality of life. So I think a really interesting study that warrants further investigation in the long term, but these data would not change, at least in my mind, would not change practice patterns in terms of comfort levels with administration of testosterone to transgender men. The last study we're going to talk about in reproductive endocrinology is looking at aquaporins and PCOS. Aquaporins are the primary mediator of permeability in the ovarian follicle. This is studied by Song and colleagues from Zhengzhou, China in their paper, Different Expression and Localization of Aquaporin 7 and Aquaporin 9 in Granulosa Cells, Oocytes, and Embryos of Patients with PCOS and the Negatively Correlated Relationship with Insulin Regulation. They studied the expression of Aquaporin 7 and 9 in these cells by several laboratory quantification methods. The expression of aquaporin 7 and 9 was different in the granulosa cells in women with PCOS versus the controls, as was follicular insulin concentration, which was higher in PCOS women. 
The expression of aquaporins also changed over developmental time. The authors conclude that the differential expression of these aquaporins over developmental time may imply that they're involved in oocyte maturation, and the differential expression in women with PCOS may also affect the follicular maturation process seen in these patients. Gupta and Sina from the Cleveland Clinic agree, noting that the lower levels of some aquaporins in the follicles of women with PCOS could further potentiate follicular dysfunction seen in these women. This next article looks at vitamin D as an effective treatment in human uterine myomas independent of mediator complex subunit 12 or MED12 mutation. The study was done by Anna Korichin with senior author Hortensia Ferrero and others from EVRMA Rome. This was an interesting study. It was a prospective study comparing myomyoma versus myometrial tissue to gain further understanding of the role of vitamin D. Vitamin D has been implicated in uterine fiber and pathophysiology. We have discussed several other papers in the past month's episodes looking at these varied pathways. It has been reported that vitamin D levels are inversely related to the presence of fibroids, with those having the lowest levels of vitamin D having the highest number of fibroids present. In a small RCT that was previously done, women treated with vitamin D had a modest decrease in fibroid size. The objective of this study was to study whether vitamin D inhibits cell proliferation and the Wnt beta catenin and TGF signaling pathways in uterine myomyoma, independent of MED12 mutation status. And again, MED12 is mediator complex subunit 12. Given that MED12 mutations are known to affect these pathways, the author questioned whether the effects of vitamin D was seen only in patients with fibroids that are positive for MED12 mutations. They demonstrated that cell proliferations, Wnt beta catenin and TGF pathways were all upregulated in MED12 mutated cells compared to normal myometrium. And the main finding of this study was that vitamin D was shown to downregulate these pathways irrespective of the MED12 mutation. The reflections piece for this article was written by Dr. Vaishnavi Guru Sothaman and Steve Young from UNC Chapel Hill. And they note that this study adds further evidence to support the hypothesis that vitamin D could be a potential novel medical therapy for uterine fibroids. But the challenge will be in determining the therapeutic dose and whether it would require superphysiological levels of vitamin D that may actually cause toxicity. They conclude the piece by saying, it's time to open the windows and let the sun shine in. And it was a very interesting study and a really nice reflection on this work. Thank you, Eve. Our last study in reproductive sciences is looking at the very challenging scenario of regenerating the endometrium in patients with Asherman syndrome. Miguel and colleagues from EVRMA Spain and Italy study the effect of human plasma on regeneration of endometrial damage in their study, Comparison of Different Sources of Platelet-Rich Plasma as Treatment Option for Infertility-Causing Endometrial Pathologies. They took human plasma from both the umbilical cords of newborn infants and adult platelet-rich plasma, and they performed a series of experiments on these, including proteomic analysis, in vitro culture experiments, and in vivo murine models with those cells. All the plasma samples, both from adult and umbilical cord, contain molecular markers for regenerative potential. Both the umbilical cord and adult plasma showed improvement in markers from the in vitro studies, 
and in gene expression and regenerative markers in their murine models. They concluded that human platelet-rich plasma has regenerative properties usable for endometrial pathologies and may be improved if used from the umbilical core blood of newborn infants. They appropriately note that these are laboratory studies which would require clinical trials to actually demonstrate clinical utility. The commentary from Subaran and colleagues from Copenhagen, Denmark, also highlights the potential promises of these new technologies in what is a very difficult patient population to treat, but they note the challenges of actually getting umbilical cord blood to be used at large scale for clinical practice. They emphasize again that this is preliminary non-clinical data, but is promising and warrants further human clinical research. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And again, as we talk about various strategies, whether surgical or medical, I think Asherman's is one of the hardest things that we all struggle with. And it would be phenomenal to find something that may help to regenerate the stem cell population within the endometrium. I realize we're not there yet, but um, I am hopeful that the future may bear better treatments for this. I agree. I hope that we'll continue this line of research it's a miracle that needs to happen. All right. Well, thank you, Eve and Micah. That concludes review of the table of contents for the February 2021. Remember, there are video articles. There are three this month. To please go online and look at them. Please remember to consider this articles online as well as the dialogue. I want to thank all the people that have reached out to me, Art Castlebaum and um, Steve Lindheim. I'm glad you appreciate uh, listening to this. Please go ahead and reach out to us more. Please recognize that you can't use my Twitter account, not because it was disactivated, but because I don't have one. Yeah, so just to add a little bit of a timestamp to this, I feel like we're on the cusp of some history being made. It is currently Tuesday, January 12th, eight days to Inauguration Day, um, status post update number 11 from the ASRM COVID-19 Task Force, and status post disabling of President Trump's Twitter account. Kurt and Eve, I always enjoy talking about these articles with you, and I wish our listeners a happy and healthy February 2021. See you all, hopefully, or hear you all, hopefully, in another month. Bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.